From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Election Day is a week away, and some local school board races have become a focal point in the political divide. Almost all of our efforts have been, how can we flip a school board? These board members have chosen to lead with fear and manipulation. We'll get insight from CPR's education reporter, Jenny Rundin. Then, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, begins tomorrow. It's a time of remembrance and a celebration of life, and food is a central part. I grew up with my grandma next door to me. She was always cooking. She was always roasting chiles. She was always simmering canela, which is cinnamon. So, I mean, it's just these scents that bring me so much joy. And later, a scary story on this Halloween, thanks to our colleagues at Denverite and Denver Fright. CPR Classical takes the time to explore centuries of music, from timeless compositions to the music of today, highlighting local artists and performances, investing resources to bring you context and perspective. CPR supporters provide a stable source of funding for music exploration and storytelling. Your generosity will help CPR Classical continue to deliver an engaging and enlightening music experience. Make your gift now and consider joining a growing community of monthly donors at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Election Day is one week from today, and in more school districts than ever, efforts to restrict lessons on controversial topics like race and LGBTQ issues have dominated school board race forums. And the influence of many churches has also grown. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundin is here with me to discuss what's happening with these school board races across Colorado. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Chandra. So, Jenny, in 2021, you reported on the new trend of politicizing school boards. Several boards in Colorado were taken over by conservatives after elections. They promised to amplify some parent voices and rid schools of equity policies. What are we seeing during this election cycle? Yeah, those boards, Douglas County, many in the Colorado Springs area, Mesa Valley on the Western Slope, they're trying to maintain their control. But there's a coordinated effort to install conservative, in some cases, quote, biblically minded Christians, unquote, on more than a couple of dozen school boards in Colorado. Tell us more about this push to move away from conventional school board issues such as strategic planning, budgets, declining enrollment what some nationally are calling culture war issues. Certainly there are many districts that are still mostly dealing with those meat and potato issues that you talked about. But since the pandemic, it's really changed. The focus on mask mandates shifted to suspicions about how race and history is taught, a zealous anti-teachers union attitude, and often inaccurate ideas about LGBTQ agendas in schools. I talked to Jonathan Waller. He's a former police officer who was appointed as a member of the Elizabeth School Board this spring. I asked him what his main issue was when he was appointed. It's the parents that have the rights and that kids should be protected and they shouldn't be used as as an experiment. I asked him to explain what the experiment in schools was. Well, obviously, uh, confusion over sexuality. He says he wants to make sure that's not happening in Elizabeth schools. Tell us a bit more about the town of Elizabeth. 
It's a small community just south of Parker, bordering Douglas County. It was a very stable district, but just shortly after a new board member was elected, rumors began spreading about teachers and principals, and culture issues dominated board meetings. Many teachers left. Many district leaders were pushed out or resigned. What's striking here is one elementary school principal who later resigned felt compelled to tell board members her political background. And school leaders don't normally do that, right? Right, exactly. Robin Hunt, who faced attacks from board members, told them she was a Christian and a Republican who voted for Donald Trump twice. She recalled how the two board members said in a meeting that they were looking for conservative school leaders who could protect the community's values. Why would any other conservative want to work in this district, knowing how they may be ostracized and made to be a villain? These board members have chosen to lead with fear and manipulation. This spring, three conventionally conservative members, and I say that because most of Elizabeth is conservative, Mm. they quit. They said that the board lost its way and was spending most of its time instead talking about, quote, radical left-wing ideologies that don't exist in the district. Jenny, as you said, many teachers and district leaders in Elizabeth resigned this spring as did three conventional board members, it seems like with these dramatic makeovers on school boards, things can change very quickly. Indeed, as one candidate said to me, there is a lot at stake. Because once a board flips, it causes a great deal of turbulence. In some cases, we see a firing or a pushing out of many district leaders, teachers leaving, sometimes an abrupt shift of school programs or priorities. And these changes can be quite dramatic. And it's not just small communities like Elizabeth. Jenny, you've also found that there's a voter guide being distributed in churches. It's being put out by a group called Transform Colorado that wants to restore biblical values in the public square. Yes, there are about 30 Colorado districts that have candidates running that appear to share the group's focus on culture issues. And some of these are in big districts like Poudre in Fort Collins, Adams 12, Pueblo, Cherry Creek, and Jefferson County. This voter guide asks candidates five questions on issues like teachers using a student's preferred gender pronoun or whether they believe the U.S. is systemically racist. These guides and flyers are being distributed in churches and at candidate forums. Now, these flyers are paid for by the Truth and Liberty Coalition, which is based in Woodland Park. The organization has a live call-in show on, and on that show, they recently interviewed a pastor at a Pueblo-based church. Tell us about that. The pastor, Quinn Freiberg, goes into a lot of detail about a network of churches working to elect biblically-minded, solid Christians to Pueblo's school board and city council. They help candidates produce videos that are played in churches, helping them get name recognition. Freiberg is the registered agent, by the way, for a political committee to donate to candidates. Almost all of our efforts have been, how can we flip a school board? The church network, it's called Forging the Future, has already seen Hmm. success uh, flipping the school board in 2021 in Pueblo 70, which is a much smaller county district in Pueblo than the city school district. This group this year is targeting the bigger Pueblo City School District, where four of five school board seats are up for grabs. Let's go a bit more into that. Can churches as nonprofits be involved in political campaign activity? 
Right. There is a 50-year ban on churches and charities from being involved in political campaign activity, specifically intervening on behalf of or against a candidate. Churches are allowed to publish a voter education guide, for example. But the IRS states that guides that, quote, have the effect of favoring a candidate or a group of candidates are prohibited. A campaign finance expert would have to be the judge of whether focusing on a specific set of these highly charged issues embraced by the church and where candidates stand on them, whether that would be a violation of federal law. But Freiburg said there are some churches that will run a candidate's video stating the office that they're running for. Jenny, we've heard a lot about these groups that are called parents' right groups that have shifted their focus to these politically charged issues, and they are organizing to get their candidates elected to school boards. In response, some other parents have organized to push back against these board takeovers. Yeah, here's Lindsay Lee, who was new to her Colorado Springs area, District 49. She started listening to school board meetings and wondered if other parents were alarmed by what was being said. Connecting with other concerned parents in other districts helped her. While the constant stream of manufactured outrage day in and day out is overwhelming, and it's really easy to start feeling paralyzed, remember that no one of us can do everything, but everyone can do something. Another parent, Rob Rogers, he's in the Academy 20 district in Colorado Springs, says he wishes more people understood that school boards are being targeted by an organized national effort. It is not a coincidence that all of these things are happening all at the same time, all around Colorado and all around the United States. This is a very, very organized effort that would take similar organization to resist. Now, one common player in many of the school districts that have latched on to national culture issues is attorney Brad Miller, who advises them. Tell us more about him. Yes, he mainly advises charter schools, but also works with several school districts. The news site, the Colorado Times Recorder, obtained a recording of him at a Denver event sponsored by the Freedom Foundation. That's a free market think tank. Miller described his ties to national conservative groups, and he outlined his strategy for when conservative boards take control and explained the advantages to operating in Colorado, where local boards have tremendous power with little oversight. Here's parent Jessica Capsule, who says she's one of the few in Elizabeth who can speak out. That local control, which I think local control is great, but it has made it very easy for these people to move in and make changes without anyone watching or without anyone having jurisdiction over what is happening. And if you don't get involved, they can just blow through your school district and change it and make it a completely different district than what you thought you were getting into. These parents would like more parents to realize what's happening. Uh, One analyst who studies engagement with school boards says research shows no more than 20 to 30 percent of the population attends any civic meeting at any level. And he calls the rest this silent 75 percent. They tend not to be interested in hyper partisan political issues. What about money in these school board races? This is where I'll turn to my journalism colleagues at the Colorado Sun. Uh, Mm. They've 
calculated nearly $2 million spent among candidates in 42 districts, with 85% of the money spent in 15 districts. (laughs) That's a lot of money for a school board race. It it sure is. Uh, The news site calculates that almost $1.2 million is being spent by nearly a dozen super PACs. Uh, Most of the money is spent on the Colorado Springs race and in tiny Woodland Park. Uh, That has seen a dramatic overhaul, that district uh, in turmoil since a new school board was installed two years ago. We have the Colorado Teachers Union, of course, and a conservative dark money nonprofit account for most, those two account for most of the super PAC money. Just a fraction of it is directed at Denver school board races, which wasn't the case two years ago. Some of Colorado's big districts, for the most part in campaigns and forums, haven't really seen these hyperpartisan issues. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Jefferson County, Denver, and Boulder Valley. Candidate debate there centers on pretty much traditional issues, such as the best way to close academic gaps, budget shortages, declining enrollment, and school safety. Jenny, thank you. Thank you so much. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine giving us some context about the local school board races being decided this coming Tuesday, November 7th. Ballots may be submitted at any time until then. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When it comes to elections, an off year does not mean Colorado voters get to take the year off. Ballots for the fall election are out, and not only do they have lots of local races and measures, but also two statewide questions lawmakers want you to answer. One about property taxes and Tabor refunds, the other about tobacco taxes and universal preschool. Find out more and about how to vote in general with our guide at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm standing in front of an ofrenda. It's an altar inside the home of chef and cookbook author Yvette Marquez-Sharpnick. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here with me today. Could you describe what we're looking at? So this is my home altar. So in Spanish, it's called an ofrenda. Ofrenda. Basically honoring your departed loved ones. You set it up during the time of Dia de los Muertos, which is Day of the Dead. And it's a time just to, you know, set out their photographs, set out their belongings, maybe place some candles. Marigolds are very traditional for Dia de los Muertos because they're a very strong aroma. It's supposed to lure their spirit to come and visit for a day. So there's a lot of little significance and symbolism for the different elements in an altar. Well, I'm still working on my Spanish, so feel free to correct me as needed. (laughs) But again, we are here at your home in Highlands Ranch to talk about your latest cookbook, which is about celebrations of all kinds. And you have a whole section on the Day of the Dead, which starts tomorrow, November 1st. Yep. The whole cookbook is chapter by chapter of holidays, of American holidays and Mexican holidays. And Dia de los Muertos is one of my favorite holidays. Well, I can say walking into your home, that is very clear to me because it is everywhere, very colorful, just so many beautiful pictures and flowers, candles. It's amazing. Thank you. Now, people may know your website, which is called Muy Bueno, which means very good. On it, you have homestyle Mexican recipes and stories 
Your third cookbook is Fiestas. Why did you want to write a cookbook focused on celebrations? Was this something you heard from people that they needed? My biggest reason was the number one question that people ask me is, what's your favorite recipe? Mm. And that's always so hard to think about because my taste and cravings depend on the season. So like right now that we're in fall season, Mm. I'm craving like, you know, all those fall flavors like pumpkin. Mm. And so pumpkin empanadas are huge in our family. And that sounds delicious. Yeah, they're so good. And, um, and just like sweet breads, you know, Mexican pan dulce. And so just all these, you know, things that I love during the season. And so I wanted to categorize the book with those flavors and seasonally and through the holidays because that's how I honestly entertain that's how I crave food and that's how I am inspired to cook you know I have a garden and so whatever's in season is what I'm cooking let's talk more about the holiday this week it's a Mexican holiday though people from other cultures have started to celebrate it too I have seen costumes from Party City, Target, and of course, we all love the movie Coco. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about celebrating this holiday growing up? And what's a special Day of the Dead celebration memory for you? So Dia de los Muertos has definitely become very mainstream. And Mm. with the movie Coco, it's definitely become bigger. Initially, it was just a celebration in Mexico that was more in the cemeteries where you go to a graveyard and you set out candles, you set out food, you set out tequila, you play mariachi music, and you stay at the cemetery and you just honestly honor the departed. You pray, you sing, you tell stories, you, you know, bring them, you invite them to come and celebrate. My grandma would take me to the cemetery and we'd walk to the Mm. cemetery and we'd leave flowers for her two children who passed away when they were little. And so it was more of All Souls Day or All Saints Day Mm. um, or Dia de los Angelitos, which is a celebration to honor children. And as it's evolved, it's even become bigger in Mexico where there's parades and people get in costume and people dress like La Catrina, which is like this beautiful Mexican sugar skull come to life. And so it's definitely grown not only in Mexico, but definitely crossed over to the U.S. and has just become a big celebration like I celebrate it now. So it's evolved. For sure. I think not only just in my family, but throughout the world. I mean, it's definitely grown in popularity. Well, I must say, I love how you light up when you talk about it. Like your face just completely lights Mm -hmm. up and your your eyes are uh, (laughs) smizing, as they say, (laughs) smiling. So you're originally from El Paso, Texas. You write that you have traveled to Mexico many times, Would you say that you learned more about cooking in the U.S. or during those family visits to Mexico? Definitely home. I mean, definitely El Paso. Those are the recipes that are near and dear to my heart and the memories that I have with my grandma in her kitchen. I grew up with my grandma next door to me, and um, she was always cooking. She was always roasting chiles. She was always simmering canela, which is cinnamon, to make avena, which is an oatmeal, Mexican oatmeal. So, I mean, it's just these scents that bring me so much joy. And those scents are what has evolved and definitely grown into me with my culinary journey. But 
you know, traveling, it's brought me a whole different awareness of some foods that I didn't even know existed until I left El Paso. So, I mean, it's not only am I excited that Mexican food is growing throughout the U.S., but that I'm learning with it as well. I mean, there's always something to learn. It's just such a vast cuisine. Can you give us an example of some of the foods you've learned about in your travels? Yeah, I think one of the big ones is nopales, which is cactus paddles. I mean, we had them once in a while growing up, but the way they make food with them in, say, in Oaxaca is just amazing. Like you can have a smoked, you know, cactus salad Mm. and it's just amazing. And so I've come up with those inspirations. I bring it back home and I try and recreate them here. So I love traveling because it inspires me to come up with new flavors. I think there are misconceptions among some people who do not commemorate this holiday traditionally that it's related to Halloween. Some people think it's a sad day since it's about honoring loved ones who have died. But in reality, it's celebratory, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's what we try and show with all the colors. The big saying that I always think of is your departed are only forgotten if you forget them. Mm. So, and I just heard a story the other day thinking about our own legacies. You know, maybe our children and our children's children, maybe if we're lucky that their generation is going to still talk about us. But after that, you know, who knows what's going to be left behind. And so my goal is to continue the stories so that my children, even though maybe they didn't know my grandma like I did, they'll still know all those stories as if they did and continue sharing those stories generation after generation. Yeah, just listening to you, I think it's also good to see how other cultures intersect with others. I'm originally from New Orleans, and we are known for our funerals. Mm -hmm. They are jazz funerals, and they start off kind of somber and slow, but it ends in a party. Mm -hmm. I mean, a band and dancing and a lot of uh, connections there that I'm seeing. (laughs) Back to your altar The colors on it are very bright, joyful, and yes, festive. Could you tell me more about a person or an object on your altar here? The star of the show (laughs) is my grandma, Jesusita. Mm. So she lived a very long life. She lived to be 98 years old. And she was like my second mom. And here is like one of her little elephants. So you want to leave something that was belonged to them. So this was also her little Bible and her rosario, her rosary. And then it's just, you know, some of her siblings, my aunts, my tias, my tia Vicky, my Nina Valentina, Ernestina. Mm. And so these are just a lot of my aunts. My father, he passed away earlier this year. And so now he's a part of my altar. And so it's it's hard when it's a brand new Mm, person who's deceased and it's hard to believe that they're gone. But at the same time, it's healing and it's beautiful because it really makes you take that time to remember all those beautiful memories that you had with them. And what's so wonderful here looking at it is you have all the frames of the loved ones in silver frames. The pictures are black and white, Mm -hmm. and they're in silver frames, but you add these pops of color with the flowers and the candles, and you even have the baby's breath uh, and the skulls. It's beautiful. 
Thank you. Yeah. And that's what I try and do. I mean, I just come up with a color theme every year. So it could be neutral. It could be bright orange. And this year I just decided to have it very neutral with just pops of magenta and that yellow from the marigolds. Now, did you decorate this yourself or is this more of a family project? This year I did it myself. You know, my daughter, she's already off to college, so she's not at home anymore. But my son, you know, loves to gather everything, brings up all those boxes and bins from the basement to help me decorate. But um, for the most part, I did it all this year. Well, let's move over into your kitchen and talk about the food, because, of course, food is central to this holiday. Tell us about some of the food items that generally make up a traditional Day of the Dead celebration meal. So there's all kinds of traditional dishes, um, like say there's mole, there's tamales. I mean, honestly, it's all about who you're honoring and what they love to eat. Like say with your family, say they love beignets, you know, like mm. you could sit out beignets on your ofrenda. So we'll start off making some Mexican hot chocolate, you know, always in the cooler months. That was a the drink that my mom would make for us growing up. And then we're also going to make a salsa de molcajete. Mm. So it's a mortar and pestle made out of lava rock. And so it just gives that salsa a very traditional, delicious flavor. And if you don't have a molcajete, you can just use a food processor or a blender. But it's a very simple garden salsa. All right. So we're here in front of your stove. You have this beautiful teal pot. And what is in that? So right now we have canela simmering. So it's just cinnamon sticks. Mm. And... That is the basis of so many Mexican drinks and desserts, and it's just, it's magical tea and canela. Like, you could just, have you ever had, like, just a basic cinnamon tea? I have not. Both my grandmas would always just brew canela, so their house always just smelled mm. like cinnamon, and you can just drink cinnamon tea. It's great for, like, if you have diabetes or high blood pressure. There's so many medicinal properties in just canela, which is amazing. It's just so, what's the word, aromatic? Aromatic, yeah. yeah aromatic. That, that's what I was thinking yeah. when you were talking about the cinnamon. Mm -hmm. That's what you think about. It. Yeah, it, it, it's just all the fall and the winter flavors and all in one pot. So we're going to start with Mexican hot chocolate, but you start with that tea, with your canela tea wow. as your basis. So that's what makes it different, you know, because everybody's like, hot chocolate is hot chocolate. No, no, <laughs> not Mexican hot chocolate. So after you bring your pot to a boil, you want to let that steep and, mm. you know, just let it come to a brown color. So let me pull out the canela sticks. We go through canela like crazy in the fall and winter months. <laughs> and I have to ask because uh -huh. I don't think I've ever made anything with fresh cinnamon. cinnamon yep. Where does one get this? You can get it in the spice section of any grocery store. Usually mm. it's like in a little jar and they're tiny little skinny sticks. Mm, yeah, these but, look like yeah, these, tree branches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But those, they sell them like in spice packages and they'll still sell them like at King Supers or your local grocery store. You just got to look for those and they're usually labeled like Fernandez or like with a Mexican brand, but um, they're cheaper, they're Mexican and they're delicious. So now we have this very amber colored water. 
Yes. Um, in this beautiful teal pot on your stove brewing. And so what's next? The way my mom thickens Mexican hot chocolate is with a little bit of cornstarch. Mm. So you can also use corn flour, masarina. And nobody wants watery hot chocolate. Right. I mean, <laughs> so it's just like you need to I'm have Now I'm learning like, a trick here. Yes. Yeah, you just need to have like a little bit of something to coat your, yeah. your nice tummy when you're feeling cold and you need something to and warm you up. These Colorado winters give, oh, gives gosh. us many opportunities yeah. that we want that. <laughs> yeah, so you just make like a slurry of your cornstarch and add that in. And then the other, the magic ingredient to Mexican hot mm. chocolate is Mexican chocolate. So I grew up with this brand, and it's called Abuelita, yes. which is Now, I have grandma. seen that, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I have made some of their cocoa. Oh, cool. Yes. And so I use, you know, Mexican chocolate, not just in drinks, but you can use it in a dessert. You can grate it up. Mm -hmm. And um, one yummy dish that's popular on my blog is uh, Mexican banana bread. Oh, so it's an easy one because it's like banana bread for the most part is very easy to make. Adding in the Mexican chocolate just takes it to a whole other level. And we should note that it's dark chocolate and it's round and thick. Yeah. And so you're just, putting it like almost like bars yeah, into yeah, yeah. the water. Yeah. So it's just tablets of Mexican chocolate and Mexican chocolate has like some spices also have like cinnamon mm. and some sometimes some chili sugar and just some other spices and it just it's really unique and you can find abuelita at the grocery store but you can also use other brands like ibarra is another popular mm. one taza is like really cool you'll find that like at little boutiques now mm -hmm. um, but then if i go to mexico like i love finding artisan mexican chocolate well, I'm really excited about this because Mexican hot chocolate is one of my favorite donuts at Voodoo Donuts. Ooh. <laughs> and I always I go for that with that little extra heat at the oh, end. Oh, <laughs> I bet. I bet. And this is a fun tool. It's a molinillo. Mm, no, I have never seen that. You yeah. have to describe this. So it's carved, hand carved. Of wood. Yes, hand carved wood. And what's funny is... I had a book signing recently and a little boy was like shaking it. He thought I was it was going <laughs> to say that. I said, it looks like an instrument. Yeah, it looks like, a, you know, like a traditional like maraca, right? Like, a yes. Mexican. but I was like, no, that's not what that is. He's like, what is it? I was like, you use it to make Mexican chocolate. And it's a beautiful decoration. You know, like when you're not using it. That's what I was going to say. I could put that on a shelf and it yeah. looks like art. <laughs> yes, it does. And it is. You can find some beautiful hand-carved wooden ones in Mexico. And so what you do is you go like this. Which is rolling, yeah, rolling so it on both, between both of your hands. Yeah, and so you, it's a frother. You know, a traditional Mexican hot chocolate should always be very frothy. Mm. So that's like the rite of passage, you know, for making a good Mexican chocolate. And it's working. It's getting very frothy. <laughs> and what I like to do, like when I'm doing like a tamalada, which is a tamale making party or just like a women's party, um, Kahlua. Like ah. <laughs> add a little shot of Kahlua <laughs> too. To it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. so we'll let that simmer. And then I also have some salsa. Yes. So it's just basic tomatoes and chile, a little bit of garlic. And 
What I have here is a comal. It's a black cast iron skillet, and this lives on my stovetop all the time. And these are whole tomatoes and peppers, not sliced, not chopped, just whole tomatoes. While this is roasting, we're gonna grind up our garlic with so a you little bit of salt. You have them roasting in this cast iron skillet on the stovetop, and yes. now we're moving over to... To the molcajete. So the molcajete is a mortar and pestle made of lava rock. And so we're gonna add a little bit of, just a couple of garlic cloves with some salt. Mm. And so we're gonna make a paste. You do the same process if you're making guacamole. So you grind up your garlic and, and your onions, if you're using onions in your guacamole, and then you add in all your, your avocados and mash them in here as well. Mm. And it just tastes so much better made in a molcajete. Then you can hear our little tomatoes talking. Yes, I hear that roasting <laughs> on the pan. It's speaking to us. Yeah, and this was, you know, one of those scents that is part of my childhood. You know, my grandma was always roasting chile. Every day she was making fresh salsa. After she roasted all the ingredients, she would take them in her hand and crush it up mm. in a bowl. And I would always be there as a little girl thinking like, isn't that gonna burn her, her hands, her <laughs> eyes? And, but that's the way she made it. She would just crush everything with her bare hands. So I always think that is so amazing. Yeah, when you were talking about her home, I was thinking about all the aromas mm -hmm. that probably bring you back every time you smell them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was always beautiful scents wafting from grandma's house. <sighs> Love that. So what's distinctive about homestyle Mexican food? Why do you describe it that way in particular? I think it's all about, you know, we are all so busy. And I feel like there's so much at our fingertips that people don't take the time to just get back to basics. And Mexican food, in all honesty, is very easy to make. And so many people are surprised about that. You know, it's just simple tomato, jalapenos, garlic that make an amazing, easy, delicious salsa. You don't need anything crazy fancy, but so many people just buy a jar of salsa. And once you have homemade fresh salsa, just mm. makes a big difference. So I try and inspire, encourage people like, okay, you can buy a jar of salsa. It's just not going to be the same, <laughs> but you could take, you know, 10, 15 more minutes and just make a delicious homemade salsa that, that's going to be so delicious. So while this is roasting, you want a little cup of some hot chocolate? Absolutely. And it's in this adorable mug. Oh my gosh. So do you get all of your pottery from Mexico or do you buy it here? I have an addiction. <laughs> my husband calls me a hoarder. <laughs> so, so you're telling me there's a TLC uh, yes. show in your future. <laughs> oh God, I hope not. I'm a neat hoarder. <laughs> That's good. But um, no, I love collecting pottery. Anytime I go to El Paso or New Mexico or Mexico, I'm always on the hunt for mm. little treasures. So the moment of truth, I'd try out this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably very hot. Be careful. Oh, wow. Delicious. It, the cinnamon is really strong. I love it. Mm -hmm. So our chiles and our tomatoes are ready. 
And so then you just want to grind up your chile with mm. this garlic and the salt. I got to put a little elbow grease into I that, know. right? So you can cook and also tone your arms. <laughs> Multitasking, yeah, right? Yeah, a little cardio action here. Mmm. So there we have salsa de molcajete. Beautiful. You've got to try this. Oh, and it's like warm. Too. Yeah, I. that's one thing that I love is warm salsa. I hate when you go to a restaurant and you get cold salsa. Cold salsa. Oh, really? Yes, that's like my pet peeve. Like, you don't want to put cold salsa on your nice hot plate. You know, your hot plate of food. Oh, I love it. And the heat is... It's spicy. It's heating. <laughs> <laughs> it's hot, but I love it. Oh, good. You also have sections in your cookbook dedicated to meals for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Now, those holidays are obviously coming up soon. Can you tell us more about your Muy Bueno homestyle Mexican twist on meals for those holidays? You know, I didn't realize how our Thanksgiving was so different or our Christmas. You know, I just assumed everybody made tamales for Christmas or <laughs> that everybody had rajas con queso, which is like chili strips in cheese on the Thanksgiving table. Like I just, those were just staples that we had growing up that, you know, salsa, for instance, it's always on our table at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, you know, like some people pour gravy on their potatoes or their turkey. I put salsa. <laughs> so, you know, there's just certain things like that, that make our holidays a little bit different. Absolutely. And of course, me being from the South, I can remember people having cornbread every day. Like mm -hmm. that was their, like every day we make our cornbread mm -hmm. and it's on the stove and it's going to be incorporated into dinner. Mm -hmm. You write that Mexican celebrations for Christmas start on December 12th. Mm -hmm. So Virgen de Guadalupe is, you know, mother of Jesus. She is big in Mexican culture. And so traditionally in Mexico, they start Christmas celebrations right after her birthday. Mm. So that's December 12th. And your book even has instructions to make adorable Christmas ornaments that look like tamales <laughs> made with corn husk. Yep, it's just the way you would normally make tamales. It's a great craft for kids because, say, if you want to host a tamale-making party, you can give the kids some corn husks to play with, too. And I get some, like, kind of that acrylic filling, like, for pillows. Mm. And you use that as a filling with a corn husk. And you wrap it like if you're making a little tamal. But instead of, obviously, to be edible, you're going to wrap it with a little ribbon, and then you can hang them on your Christmas tree. So they look super pretty. We've been talking a lot about death, but not in a sad way. Have you thought about what you want to leave behind when you're gone? Was that part of your motivation for writing this cookbook and writing down all these recipes and traditions? Yeah, I think um, after my grandma passed away, she died it in 2004. Mm. And my daughter was little under two years old at the time. And just thinking like, that was my aha moment. Like, mm -hmm. she's not going to know my grandma. Mm -hmm. And it's time for me to step up those traditions. And what was crazy, it was my daughter when she was eight years old, that she's the one who suggested I write a cookbook, 
And it was because my mom was visiting a lot and showing me how to make these recipes, but we never wrote them down. And anytime I would cook something, I would call my mom and say like, okay, how much, you know, cornstarch do I add? Or how many discs of Mexican chocolate do I add? And so when my daughter said, you should really write a cookbook, I was like, genius, like, yes, let's do it. You know, just write a simple little family cookbook. But I never knew it was going to evolve into three published cookbooks and my full-time business. So one little idea just turned into something bigger. Did your daughter cook with you? She loves to cook. Before she left for college? She's a natural little cook. I mean, and that's what, you know... For her to have that vision of saying, you need to write a cookbook so that when I go off to college, I can have your recipes with me. And to think she's in college now and she's making these recipes and, you know, she's fast. She's amazing. And I'm so happy that it comes natural to her. Yvette, thank you so much for having us in your home today. Thank you. Come over anytime. Mm, All right. That's tempting. (laughs) After all the treats I've had today. Yvette Marquez Sharpneck is the chef and author behind the Muy Bueno blog, website, and cookbooks. Her latest is called Muy Bueno Fiestas. Her Instagram, Muy Bueno Cooking, is also full of lots of fun recipes and cultural reflections. Before we go, we wish a happy Dia de los Muertos to all who celebrate. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. A supposedly haunted mansion in Denver was the basis for the 1980 movie The Changeling. Writer Russell Hunter lived there in the 60s. Doors opened and closed, walls shook and threw paintings to the floor. A secret stairway led Hunter to the diary of a nine-year-old boy whose family hid him in the attic because of his disability. There, he died before inheriting his grandfather's fortune, so the family masqueraded an orphan as their son, a changeling. In a seance, Hunter learned the boy was buried under the house with a gold medallion, which was found when the home on 13th Avenue was demolished. Russell Hunter then moved, but said the unexplained phenomena followed him, so he called a Denver priest for an exorcism, which seemed to have worked. Hunter's film The Changeling was a critical success, still considered one of the best horror movies ever made. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. On this Halloween, we're sharing a story from Denver Fright, a recent event where local authors gathered to tell horror stories from a wide range of cultures and perspectives. Our colleagues at our sister publication, Denverite, hosted the event at the Bug Theater. Writer D.L. Cordero was among the storytellers. Cordero is intentional about featuring representation from marginalized communities and reclaiming culture after colonization. Yes, centering both existence and resistance. In the short story Roots, a man named Rivera invades an ancestral grove, killing the grove's protector, Uisa, and his own people for money and greed. But the land he's attempting to steal with his comrades, Beto and Garcia, fights back. Inside the enclosed grove, hundreds of slits throughout the concrete roof allowed only hazy light to filter through thickly paned glass. Fluorescent grow lights ran on generators to provide most of what the dangerous sun could not. 
humidifiers droned, creating a constant carpet of billowing fog, and growing on staggered platforms that descended toward a tiny apartment. Trees were arranged by maturity, the eldest on the lowest platforms, saplings at the top. An amphitheater of tall, silent witnesses, branches holding judgment high within their canopies. Rivera and his men choked on the acrid stench of naturally fertilized soil. She was propagating and experimenting with hybridization, Rivera's arborist Garcia explained while underlying Uisa's research. He and Rivera stood within the apartment, a concrete square with glass panels running the length of every wall. The trees looked in. Garcia landed on words that furrowed his brow. What language is this? Rivera recognized handwritten notes in Taino, a language he spoke but couldn't read well. He scanned lines, understanding four or five words, two of which repeated, guali yabisi, tree, children. Rivera didn't proffer his scant interpretation. He just stared through the apartment's front window. There, centered in the amphitheater, stood la ceiba. Revered and 300 years old, Yuisa had transported her from the island of Yekis, twisting naughty bark, a trunk wider than three grown men, roots so grand and smooth, they looked like gray, brown rivers sloping into the earth. The Indio in Rivera swelled to see Yuisa had succeeded in propagating la ceiba. Two saplings grew beside her, their trail of thorns known as spirit ladders running pinstriped bark. Rivera stirred. Within the small apartment, he'd fallen asleep behind the grove control panel, hundreds of switches putting distance between him and the trees. Akani, 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 Akani. His eyes peeled open. Through the front window, he saw orange light silhouetting branches that swayed. Rivera scanned. The exterior limestone doors were closed. There were no windows in the grove walls. None of the glass in the ceiling was broken. Why? Were the branches moving? He hurried to the bedroom Garcia was using, flicked on the light, and found an empty, disturbed bed. Overhead creaking drew Rivera's gaze, eyes widening when he saw branches grow through the ceiling and walls. Concrete crumbled into dust along fractured rafters, scattered almond-shaped leaves buried the greedy floor. Shuffling some with his foot, Rivera found nail marks clawed into the concrete. He pulled his revolver from his hip holster, staggered back to the control panel. Two faces were reflected in its window, flowers growing in root-like hair. Guali, yapisi, tree, children. 
the wood grain in their irises spread, texturing pinstripe skin. A wine whipped through the grove, branches shuddered, lowered, snapped, Rivera's men screamed, running, tumbling, rifles barking, muzzle fire in the night threatened everything Rivera killed for. Beto skidded into the apartment, turn on the grow lights. White fluorescence brightened. Empty sleeping bags dropped from tree canopies, roots wrapped around ankles and flung men downstairs, branches ripped through chests, skewering hearts on live stakes. The 300-year-old Seba grew for the first time in a century, stretching, widening, her trunk rose and fell with new breath. Young, pinstriped Seba branches grew too, tearing through the apartment's window and wrapping around Beto's neck. Green oval fruits swam forward and swallowed Beto's hands with white mouths. Rivera fired every round in his revolver when branches focused on him, mouth wide, lips trembling, feet bungling into the back bedroom. He barricaded the door with a lone desk and pulled a chair in front of him like a shield, creaking, crackling, crunching, splintering through the walls, branches vined like granular snakes, Fluid like ink, they crowded out the air. Every wall in the concrete apartment smashed into gravel. Rivera was seized, branches growing into his skin, muscle, and bones. Beto's body was overtaken by pink and yellow flowers, perfuming the air with sweet, fragrant fruit as Rivera was dragged onto La Ceiba's platform. Her roots cascaded over Rivera, burying all but his head. La Ceiba craned forward, her saplings too, children's laughter swimming from hollows. Akani, 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 welcome to the ground, used to bury us, Yuisa called, Maprika. <laughs> Excerpt from the short story, Roots, by D.L. Cordero. Hear this horror story and others from the Denver Fright event at denverright.com. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.